0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Grok Science Show. I'm Tom Stewart, and this week we're speaking with Sophie McCoy, PhD candidate at the University of Chicago in the Department of Ecology and Evolution. We know that the Earth is changing rapidly as a result of human activity. Weather patterns are shifting, and the oceans are changing too, both in their temperature and acidity. It's critically important to understand the effects of these changes on ecosystems. It matters for our agriculture, our fisheries, and the conservation of biological diversity. Sophie's research aims to understand how ocean acidification is affecting marine species, and she's trying to discover the new dynamics of these changed ecosystems.
1: I'm Sophie McCoy. I'm a PhD candidate here at the University of Chicago in the Department of Ecology and Evolution. And I've been working with Dr. Kathy Fister for the last five years on trying to understand environmental influences in the Pacific Ocean on coastal marine communities.
0: Have you always done marine science?
1: No, actually, I was a chemistry major when I was an undergraduate at Brown University, and I did a lot of lab work on, um, as an undergraduate, on chemical or nutrient cycles in lakes, with an interest in recent climate history. And I got more and more interested in you know, how that actually would affect biology, which is how I got here into my
0: current project. So your project it has implications for historical understanding of diversity and also future effects and changes?
1: Yeah, I've been using a lot of historical data, so historical really just going back to the 1980s, so depending on how old you are you may or may not think that's historical, but um, trying to understand how climate change, in particular ocean acidification, has influenced local ecology and biodiversity among algae. Ocean acidification is really a name for um, a chemical process of CO2 emissions from you know, whatever, our cars, factories, any kind of fossil fuel burning in the atmosphere that dissolves in seawater, and when CO2, carbon dioxide, combines with water, it makes a series of these chemical compounds, really inorganic carbon nutrients that different organisms can use for photosynthesis underwater or for building shells and skeletons, so corals and mussels use these inorganic carbon nutrients in the seawater. And just that whole process is what people call ocean acidification. Because when this happens, pH also goes down the more CO2 that gets incorporated into the water, the more acidic the seawater becomes. I'm trying to make links as well between physiology and how organisms respond at that level and how that influences ecological traits. Why don't I get a bit more specific in terms of what traits I'm looking at? I'm interested in competition between algal species, and so their morphology, so how thick they are, um, how fast they grow, things like that are what I'm referring to as ecological traits.
0: Why are algae a good system to study, or an important system to study this question?
1: So the kind of algae that I'm working with are called crustose coralline algae, and this is because they have a skeleton that's made of calcium carbonate, and so that's one of the minerals that relies on the source of inorganic carbon in the seawater. And so they need that to make their skeleton. And they also need this form of dissolved CO2 because they photosynthesize all algae or photosynthetic organisms. And so the process of ocean acidification is going to present a chemical trade-off between those two nutrients that they use. And so that could be a really interesting problem at the organism level. A lot of people have been studying crustose coral and algae and their responses to ocean acidification to try and understand the problem, sort of a poster child organism.
0: Where in the world do you find these creatures?
1: everywhere. They're found everywhere. So they're actually really tolerant marine plants. So they live in the Arctic regions because they can deal with very low light levels. They also live in the tropics. They're very important in coral reef systems. They cement together coral heads and actually make it look like a reef. And they can also provide some of the first substrate that corals colonize onto to start making a reef. So I study them in colder water, not polar, but colder water locations So I'm working on an island called Tattooche Island that's off the coast of Washington State, right at the Canadian border, so across from Vancouver Island. And I chose that location because a lot of work from the 80s was done with these algae at that site a lot of work on everything ecology was done at that site, which started with Dr. Robert Payne, who's a professor emeritus at the University of Washington. And since then, my advisor, Kathy Fister, and another professor I've been working closely with, Tim Wooten, have been measuring pH and temperature and all, all environmental parameters at Tatouche for the last 13 years, and it started in 2000. And pH is the only thing that has been changing in that region is over that time frame. Temperature is so, not yet. Temperature is not changing. Actually, interestingly, temperature at that particular location is predicted to decline over time because it's getting more deep water pushed up at the surface, but we're not seeing that yet either. We're not seeing any long-term trend in temperature, so it's an isolated pH or acidification. Can you describe Tatouche a little more? It's a really small island, and it's actually, it's really close to shore. I think it's less than a kilometer away from shore. But that said, it's kind of a pain to get to. So we either take a boat out from the nearest town, which is Nia Bay on the Makah Tribe Reservation. Actually, the tatoosh is part of the Makah Reservation as well. So we work with them to get approval to work there. And the boat ride is 45 minutes, rough seas. I get very seasick. So it's actually not very much fun for me. Um, or when the water is really rough and dangerous, we take a helicopter in, also from Nia bay, and that's about a 15 minute ride. I've done it, in, it's usually in the spring, so April and early May. I've done it maybe five times. Some of my best photos are from helicopter. It's very cool. I also get really sick in the helicopter, so win-win. I've been going there for five years. Yeah, that's right. I've been going there for five years, and it's actually, it's a lot of fun. It's usually between... Three and ten people. It's like fancy camping, so we have the US Coast Guard used to have a really large base there, and so we have these sort of derelict buildings left over that we're allowed to use. So one of them we call the Winter Palace, it has a little stove, and we all huddle around it and um, make our meals. So, you get to know your colleagues very well. But yeah, then there's lots of seals, lots of algae, lots of mussels, everything ecologists like. And it's rather isolated, so you don't get your experiments messed up by accident. People have been doing research there since around 1970.
0: Long term ecological data sets are pretty rare and pretty important when you can find yeah. them. What makes this one
1: unique in terms of yeah. being a marine station where it is? There have been, you know, 10 students at a time doing research out there for the last 50 years or so. So a lot of things have been studied and maybe not, cons- you know, the same data set for all the different organisms or all the different interactions, but it's a really large data set. The research on tattoos is also a little bit unique because it's had a focus on interactions between species and not just observations over time.
0: Regarding the paper, the Ecology Letters paper, one of the yeah. reasons that that was so... Yeah. Awesome. Generally, it's because it had um, a historical component, right? You got a yeah, that's right. data set from decades in the past that you could explicitly compare. Was it the dynamics of ecological interactions to the current dynamics?
1: Yeah. So it was everything. So it was um, competitive interactions. So I looked at the network. So that's just looking at the direction of who's beating who. Uh, but also looked at the intensity of competitions, it's called species interactions, and how strong or weak those interactions were. Um, I also, and that, that I tested through um, surveys and observations, but also with experiments. Uh, and I redid the experiments that Bob Payne had done in the 80s. And this was actually, it was fantastic. He was out there as well, you know, standing right next to me, helping me set them up for the first time. So that was... Um, it was a lot of fun, I, th- I hope, for both of us. <laughs> um, and then I also did just surveys of abundance, surveys of competition, um, and looked at the grazers. So there are a lot of snails that eat these algae to try and understand what if their role has been changing over time as well.
0: Um, so something people might be a little surprised by the idea of is algae competing against one another. Usually when you think yeah. competition, you think, you know, deer ramming horns to convince a female (laughs) to mate with them or something like that. So what what does competition mean?
1: So I guess what I haven't said yet, I work in the (laughs) intertidal zone, so that's everything that is covered up with water at high tide and exposed to the air at low tide. And what they call rocky intertidal is where you have rocks on the edge of the water instead of a sandy beach. And a lot of things grow there. Lots of algae, lots of barnacles, mussels, and everything there is competing for space to grow on the rock. Because the rock doesn't move, so there's only a set amount of space. And actually, in our tile, ecologists have been kind of obsessed with competition for space for a very long time. And when the algae that I'm studying, the crustose coral and algae, compete, it looks just like lichens on a rock or on a tree. There are these flat, disc-like, Organisms and they're hard, they're brittle, they're very chalky. Um, that's because of the calcium carbonate skeleton. And they just grow roughly like disks outwards. And when they meet, they overlap. And whoever manages to get on top wins that competitive interaction you know, because they need light. So whatever part is underneath sort of dies. The whole organism doesn't die, just the part that's underneath another organism dies. And it's actually really fun when you you chisel them off the rock, because they're really brittle, to collect them, and you can get these stacks of several layers of individuals when you look at them in cross-section, and you can see (laughs) the trajectory over time. They grow just a few millimeters per year. So I experimentally force them to compete by chiseling them off the rock and embedding them in marine putty, Uh, and you would think that would kill them, but it doesn't. That's actually how they transplant corals also. And I made them compete by putting them very close together, so maybe five millimeters apart. I left my experiments out for two years
0: in the intertidal. The first thing that you did was explicitly measuring how these species interact with one another in the natural environment Yep. and how they compete for use of space as a resource.
1: And I also did a manipulation of grazers because it's sh- across trophic levels. So the grazers are snails eating coral and algae. And in the past, whether or not they were present really changed the competitive, um, competitive rankings and the, the competitive network of what was going on. So I wanted to see if that effect would still still be seen in the modern data as well. So that was kind of like a second
0: parallel study that was going on to see.
1: Yeah, it was kind of embedded at first. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I let them I s- let them sit out there for two years, periodically, the ones where I didn't want the snails to be in there. In a know. cage or something? Or? No, I removed them by hand every two <laughs> weeks <laughs> and took photos of all the transplants so I could track the growth over time. So we go to bed really early around when the sun goes down wake up at 4.30, because we have to be out for low tide, we can only work when the tide is out. And the lowest tide of the day during the summer is in the morning. And so, yeah, we wake up around 4.30, um, just before the sun comes up. It's not safe to work before the sun comes up. Quickly have some cereal, maybe some hot tea on the camp stove, and then by quarter to five, put on your rubber boots, your rubber pants, your rubber jacket with hood because it's probably raining, and head down. So. The beach is down a cliff. I don't remember how many stairs are on the cliff, but it's over 100. So you make your way wearing your rubber rubber gear all the way down the stairs. At low tide, when the sun is coming up, it's kind of amazing. It's just these huge beds of, I don't know, maybe 100 meters of just kelp all around you when you go and you peel back the kelp, and the crustose coral and algae is this hard pink floor underneath it. And it's really neat. They actually call it the coral and algal carpet. And so I'd go through, uh, remove all the grazers, so I peel them off. Usually I pry them off with a screwdriver and try not to kill them. Measure how long they are, the and grazers. then the grazers. Um, so it's these snails called chitons. Limpets um, are the little ones with the round pointy cone shells that you see on the beach and urchins. Uh, So I'd measure them and then throw them into the water as far as I could. They actually, they're territorial, so if you put them nearby, they come back. But if you throw them further away, they'll find a new home. And did that for all the removal plots, and I photographed all of the transplants at least once every two weeks. So I used the archival specimens that I had. I did some morphological studies. No, I shouldn't get into that. Well,
0: so why don't we start next by saying, well, they, they did this experiment, in the 80s, yeah, painted Yep. yep. Um, and what was his primary finding? Primary. So condition?
1: his primary conclusion was that um, the presence of grazers has a really strong effect on the competitive hierarchy among the crustose coral and algae. So without grazers, it's a very simple ladder-like structure. There's one species. It's called pseudolithophyllum miracatum. We can just call it PM for now. So PM was at the top of this ladder. It beat everybody all absolutely all the time and then you know there's five five species of algae perfectly lined up you put grazers in the system and pm is still winning 97 or 98 percent of the time but it's sort of chaos develops underneath so it's called an intransitive competition where you have as if you're drawing a network you don't just have arrows drawn in a line but you start getting loops and things so like rock paper scissors where paper beats rock Rock beats scissors, and scissors beat paper. And um, the grazer presence initiated those rock-paper-scissors dynamics in the hierarchy. Before the grazers were there, it was not rock-paper-scissors. Not rock-paper-scissors before, yeah. So a very linear set of arrows pointing up to this PM species at the top. And what I found was was really cool in that that rock-paper-scissors dynamic happens with or without grazers now in the post-ocean acidification ocean. So what I'm- is my interpretation of that is the acidification is kind of replacing the role of grazers. So this PM species only wins 25% of the time now instead of 100%. And that, first I guess that has released the competitors from this um, I don't know, this dictatorship <laughs> of competition uh, because these, these species like PM that are thicker were better competitors before, but they're also more stressed out by acidification. It affects them more because it makes it harder for them to maintain how thick they are, and so it takes away part of their competitive advantage now.
0: So now, when you do these experiments specifically, what was a clear winner is no longer so clearly always the winner.
1: Yeah, and in some cases, it's actually almost a loser. It's a loser. Yeah,
0: and even without grazers now, you get rock paper Yeah. So it has changed a lot. A lot.
1: Yeah. So the yeah the competitive dominant is no longer dominant. There's not actually a clear dominant, which it levels the playing field a bit. So it makes it easier for species to coexist at higher abundances than before. And there's not as much of a what it's called trophic control in the system. So the grazers aren't controlling the competitive dynamics so much based on whether or not they're present. And then I followed up on that because I thought it was interesting because competitive dominant was the thickest one and I wanted to know if this hypothesis I had that the thickness was what was being affected and causing all this mix up. So I looked at, oh, Bob Payne saved all of his transplants that he ever did. Like, he has them dry. Like, he you can chisel out the little epoxy disc, the marine putty, and he dried them out and he kept them. Um, so I did this in case, you know, anyone wants this later. Um, and he kept them, and he sent me some that had the species I wanted on them. And I looked at them under SEM and measured how thick they were, and I also um, measured, you know, what's going on with their skeleton, so how thick the cell walls and things are. And... Sure enough, (laughs) that competitive dominant is now half as thick as it was in the 80s.
0: To me, the study underscores a number of things. Firstly, science is really hard work. Sophie was getting up at dawn for two summers in a row to check on these tiny plots down by the ocean, in the rain usually. It's incredible that she did this. And secondly, it really goes to show how important long-term ecological data sets are. We wouldn't have been able to make this discovery, to know that things have changed, without a data set that goes back 40 years now. And although Sophie's study was at a relatively small scale, watching algae compete for a few millimeters of space, these species are important to the broader ecosystem at Tatouche, and there's reason to expect that their distribution and abundance could be changing. Finally, the effects of ocean acidification are not limited to the intertidal zone of Tatouche. These effects are happening globally, and we need to study the effects in other systems and in other species. As Sophie mentioned before, this research is in no small part made possible by the Macaw tribe, which allows researchers to spend time on their land and study the ecosystem there.
1: Um, yeah, so we've been working with the Macaw Tribe with another project I've been doing. They've been making historical and archival muscle shell material available to us. We've been working with the Macaw Museum out there. And so it's been a really fun aspect of it as well. And we've been in touch with their archives manager as those results have been coming in. Um, and my advisor actually has Given a couple talks to the tribal council about that. Um, We actually have had the last several years a macaw intern. Um, It's usually a high school or college student in the macaw tribe who's interested in learning more about what we do because we're working on their land. Recently, we actually had a high school student who wants to go into ocean policy and conservation, and so she just started college and she is, I think, having a good time with that. Not wanting to be a scientist, but I think that working with us. I think has given her an interesting perspective on how to make links between people who generate data and then people like, you know, the tribe, where there are a lot of fishermen in the tribe thinking about how to use data on how the oceans are changing.
0: Thank you again to Sophie McCoy for sharing her research with us. This paper was published in Ecology Letters and is titled, Historical Comparisons Reveal Altered Competitive Interactions in a G-